It's been said a couple times already this morning, but I just want to add to it. Uh, Thank you for being here. We're grateful that you've come. I hope you feel welcome. If you've got questions or needs, I hope that you find a place to ask uh, those things around. And as we consider the Bible together here in just a moment, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 8. So if you have a Bible with you, you can go to Matthew 8. If you need one, there should be a hardcover one in front of you. You could take that. As you're turning there, just a couple of things. My name is Lance. And uh, I've been um, in Tallahassee coming up on a decade now. I've been a member of Four Oaks that whole time. And what a, a joy it is for me to serve as a pastor. I often get to consider the Bible together in these moments. And so what we're doing, especially if you're newer, it's one of the first times that you've come, or maybe you're just starting to get a little bit comfortable. The reason we're in Matthew is because we make it a, a habit, a practice to start a book of the Bible and then work our way through it. So around the beginning of the year, end of last year, we started looking at Matthew together. We've had some starts and stops for different seasons, but we have now come through to the middle of the eighth chapter of Matthew. And if you're going to, to listen in and learn together here over the next little while, you may say to yourself, well, what's the application? What's the goal? What's the takeaway? It's a good thing to consider. So what? You may be saying, what are we after here? pastor, and maybe that's, you know, you say it with expectation. So one of the thoughts, just to remind you, is that when we study Scripture together, one of our great hopes is that we would know our Bibles better, so that in coming days as we come to difficulties in life or questions, or may have someone else that we could possibly help, we would understand the rhythms, the cadence, and where things are in Scripture. So just to remind you, Matthew starts with a great theme of fulfillment, Matthew is an eyewitness to the ministry, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and he's giving us his account. It's one of four Gospels in the New Testament, his account of who Jesus is and what he's done. This book starts with the genealogy of Christ, how he has fulfilled every Old Testament prophecy concerning who the Messiah would be who came. Then we get an early look at Jesus' ministry, some of how he's grown in stature and in favor with God and men. You see some of the early calling of disciples in his life. And now we've just come through a few chapters that are called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has taught, according to the disciples or those who heard him, with authority. His words had power. And now if you needed to characterize or you think to yourself in the coming days, where does Jesus interact and do all that healing stuff? I remember sometimes he almost like zaps the demons. How does he do that? Or where does he do that? You may think to yourself, Matthew 8 and 9. So Matthew chapter 8 and 9 are a a sort of a combo platter here thematically in the book of Matthew. Right on the heels of the teaching of Jesus, his words had power. We find out that his authority extends far beyond just his words to control not only diseases and illnesses, which we saw last week, but now we're going to see this week, commands that all would follow him and the very wind and waves themselves. So I'm going to read now in the 18th verse of Matthew 8. Matthew 8, starting in verse 18. We'll read to verse 27 and then I'll pray. Matthew records this. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher... I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. 
And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? I'd love to pray with you just for a moment. Spirit of God, give us wisdom, knowledge, insight to answer this question rightly. What sort of man is this? I pray that our picture of Jesus would be clear. I ask God that as we've gathered here today, that you would give us insight. I do not know all that harms and hinders us. I certainly don't know what's hidden in all of us who have gathered. We don't know one another perfectly. If we're honest, we don't know ourselves even close to perfectly. So I pray, Father, good Father, who not begrudgingly, but joyfully and graciously gives His Spirit. We pray, Father, give us Your Spirit in abundant measure this morning. I pray that we'd be able to see ourselves rightly, to find and to acknowledge the hidden areas. I pray, God, that there would be a a freedom this morning to no longer escape or downplay. But I ask that your word would be what it is according to our confession, living and active. That you would kindly cut us down to separation of joint, bone, marrow. And I pray that you would do this because it is our greatest hope for comfort. God, I pray that you would help us in the ways that we've hurt and sinned against others and the way that we've been sinned against. I pray that we'd focus now, learn now, and submit ourselves to your word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. When you picture your ideal spiritual self, what comes to mind? Can you imagine? Can you see? Do you have an idea of what it would mean for you with full abandon to walk in what God has given us in Jesus? Do you remember a time or a moment where the things that you sang and the things that you prayed, you believed them? That there was as little going through the motions as possible? Do you have enough imagination to think about what that would be like? Perhaps it was a time at a camp somewhere back in a distant past. Can you imagine what it would be like to confess without fear of being known? To reconcile 
knowing that we've been given a ministry of reconciliation to love others well, even at cost to ourselves. Can you imagine what running in that way would be like? If so, and I hope that's true, if so, the question for most of us in the way that we live our daily lives would be something like this. What keeps you from living in that way? You know, the Bible uses lots of illustrations for what the Christian life is like. Sometimes it's like farming. Sometimes it's like being a soldier. Then many times it's like being an athlete. And in one of the ways that it describes being an athlete, it says that we're running a great race, sprinting down a track. For some of you say, see, that's my big problem with Christianity right there. I don't like to run. But just imagine that running felt free and easy and light. The question becomes, what keeps you from running full speed? What keeps you from a deeper faith? What keeps you from believing? What you know maybe in your heart of hearts you ought to believe. In this illustration of running, the question becomes, what are the obstacles in front of you? In following Jesus, what kind of hurdles have been erected in your path? And I ask this question not in a condemning kind of way. I am a fellow runner on the track, and I have been tripped up often. I have gnarly, stubbed toes. I feel... I think in some measure what the Apostle Paul feels by the end of his life. You see, he uses this illustration and he's given up all grandeur by the end of his running after Jesus. In fact, what he says is, I'm not about the podium, I'm just about crossing the finish line. I just want to get to the end. So we've all felt what that's like. The question is though, as we're running, could the Spirit of God give us awareness to the things that make us stumble? And it's my contention, I believe, that one of the things that Jesus is doing as he interacts with people who are coming to him is he is helping them to see the things that might come in their way as they follow after Christ. It might not mean that they hit it perfectly, but at least they won't be caught unaware. So I ask you the question, what keeps you from that idealized spiritual life? What keeps you from the kind of freedom that is promised to you in Christ? What keeps you from a deep faith? What keeps you from praying fervently? What keeps you from reading unhurriedly? I think that Scripture is not mute on this issue. And what we're going to see in these two little passages here, these interactions that Jesus has with those who are following Him, they've taken the first step. They have some faith. They're following Him. What hinders us? And what hindered them in following? And I think this is what we're going to see in these sections. It's two little pictures, but we're going to find a few things in them. I believe that Jesus is going to help us to consider the cost of following Christ. There is a cost. He's going to interact with a scribe who comes, and he's going to point out the cost, making sure that the scribe has counted it. So the first will be a kind of cost in following Jesus. Secondarily, there is a sense of urgency, or I might say priority. 
That if you're to follow Jesus, the thing that needs to be kept in front of your mind at all times is what's the priority? What kind of urgency should we have in following him? So there's going to be cost and urgency in this first little section we read. And then in a very well-known, wonderful passage of Jesus in a boat when the storm comes up, we're going to see the interaction and the reality of fear and how it negatively impacts our faith. Do you remember math? Do you remember it? Do you like math? I always liked math. I've got a son who really likes math. He's been spending time prepping for very difficult high school math courses coming up. So probably just what you're doing with your summer too, right? Just brushing up on radians and functions and stuff like that. So he's been brushing up on this stuff in math. And one of the things in math that we learned is that there are both direct and inverse relationships between particular variables. A direct relationship means when one goes up, the other goes up too. An inverse relationship means when one goes up, the other one goes down. And what we're going to see is that one of the things that keeps us from running this path of faith is the reality of fear. And fear seems to have an inverse relationship to faith. It is difficult to be full of faith and entertain our fears at the same time. So that's what we're going to see. These are the hurdles put in place in front of all of those who would follow after Jesus. Let's start looking now at the way that he interacted with these folks. In verse 18, in verse 19, really, we're reminded of one great fact. If I said to you, what keeps people from following Jesus? You might say to yourself, well, willingness. It's a want to. But here's the great mystery of this passage, at least as it stands. There's no lack of willingness to follow Jesus. In fact, it starts out, Jesus sees a crowd around him, and he says, ah, we got to go to the other side. Some of you introverts have been doing this for years, right? <laughs> You're like, you, re- you read it through this interpretation. Then Jesus was at the work conference, and he saw lots of people, so he went to the other side. The question is, is he just an introvert? Is that the point here? Well, no, I don't think it's that he's an introvert, but he does have something to say about the crowd's willingness to get to him. Jesus was a spectacle. There was not a lack of willingness to get to him. He was less, you know, teenage garage band trying to get the gig at three in the morning to two people. He was much more Taylor Swift. It's hard to get a seat. Willingness is not there. In fact, verse 19 shows us that individuals in the crowd also had a willingness The scribe, a respectable person, comes up to him and says to him joyfully, Teacher, I will follow you. Now, this is a wonderful statement. Not only is he giving him the title of teacher, rabbi, respected one, but then he says, I will follow you, and he adds this tagline, wherever you go. If there has ever been a description of great willingness to follow Jesus, These crowds and this scribe showed it. So perhaps I could make one reflection. Oftentimes, when the Spirit of God has planted faith in a person, which we're here gathered of our own volition because there's been faith planted in us, oftentimes what hinders you is not a bare desire. You want to live the life that, Spirit has given, that the Spirit has given you in Christ. 
your deepest desire, when all other things are laid to bear, I think that what we would say is, yes, when I'm most clear, I want all that Jesus has for me. I would want to run free. I want this great gift of Matthew 11 that's coming in a couple chapters. The Bible's awesome. In a couple chapters, Jesus is going to say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. And you say to yourself, that's what I want. I want to come to him. So surprisingly, if I say to you, what's going to hinder you from living that life? Many times, it's not at the barest level of our souls. Now, we get distracted. But at the barest levels of our souls, we're here, aren't we? Because we'd say like, well, no, I do want that. I think I want that. That's the ordering of my life. Instead, it's going to be found elsewhere. And so Jesus interacts with this scribe who comes to him and says, teacher, I will follow you. He interacts very directly. And it might very well be that you say to yourself, I'm struggling to see here, is Jesus just being cantankerous? Maybe he is an introvert. The crowds have gotten to him. He says something extremely direct. Now, one caveat and one thing that will be sort of like a a how to use this safely. I'm going to remind you that when Jesus interacts with people, he reacts with them and interacts with them according to full knowledge. The end of John chapter 2 is going to say that he knew what was in man and he wasn't entrusting himself to them. So Jesus has the great advantage of knowing heart and mind. All we're given here, and Matthew probably doesn't know either, is that a scribe came and says, I'm going to follow you, and adding the great tagline, wherever you go, Jesus must have known something and seen something in the scribe, or he knew that those around needed to learn. And I say this because we ought to be careful. We, of course, want to imitate Jesus, but we can't always teach or instruct like him. Here's a good example. If a child comes to you and says, hey, I heard about Jesus. I want to follow him. You don't have to say to them immediately, well, you're ready to hate your parents. You know what I mean? Because sometimes Jesus says that. If someone says to him, hey, what does it mean to follow you? You don't have to immediately lead with eat my flesh, drink my blood. And why? Because you're not Jesus, right? So if we gotten that, if we get anything this morning, let's remember Jesus is God and we are not. So there is uh, use with care here, but instead of maybe imitating Jesus so that we might tell other people this, let's learn from him. What kind of thing is being counted here? Jesus says, okay, okay, I know you want to follow me. You say wherever I might go, but I don't think you know what that means. And Jesus points out that there will be a cost to following him. In other words, Jesus might say something like this. You'll follow me now, but will you follow me when the cost increases? Will you follow me when the crowds no longer laud me but want to murder me? Will you follow me when you have to leave home? Will you follow me when things get uncomfortable? Will you follow me when you realize that the Son of Man is not here to make this home more comfortable but to rescue you from trusting in this home? Now, I'm going to make a statement concerning our day and age. And there's a danger every time we say something concerning our day and age, because we all think that we're experiencing something that no one else does. It's why no matter what suffering happens to a younger generation, the old folks say, oh, you have no idea. And it's why young people say, you just don't understand. We all think our moment is the moment. So I'm aware of that temptation. But let me just describe our moment. We live, I believe, in the most comfortable age ever 
devised or lived in by man. We have in some ways conquered nearly every moment of discomfort in our lives by some form of technology, medicine, or sleep bed. I saw a new kind of bed cover that you can buy to put on your bed that has individualized air conditioning and heating for your side of the bed. It's not enough to have a fully air-conditioned house or to have a comfortable mattress to sleep on or full darkness or a sound machine or whatever else you need to sleep. You also can set your mattress to 67 degrees. We live in a world of comfort that is unbelievable, so much so that my dog is addicted to comfort. We were outside a few weeks back. Everyone's enjoying. It's summer. Everyone's enjoying. There's people swimming or there's... uh, music playing and everyone's having a great time and I notice a knocking on a window and I look over and it's my dog barking over his head at me and then looking longingly at the inside for the air conditioning. And what I realized in that moment is that he thought we were stupid for being uncomfortable. Why would you when you go in there? And so I told him, that's it. You're not eating for a week. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Some of you love, your, love pets so much that you're very mad that I said that. I'm just kidding. We feed them twice a day. Point would be this. Comfort tempts us. Many of us believe the subtle lie that says something like this. If, where, and whenever things don't go according to a comfortable plan, something has gone wrong. God must be missing it. I must be missing it. This is something to be fixed. Many of us spend most of our lives, like my dog Cannon, attempting to run away from every bit of discomfort. And Jesus, through his perfect knowledge of the scribe, knows that there's a coming day that despite his grandest intentions, there's coming a day when following Jesus will lead him to a place of having to sacrifice comfort And that for many people, sacrificing comfort will be the thing that hinders us in following Christ. We will be waylaid because we say, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I didn't know that it would cost me. And Jesus presses this question home all the way to the point of belonging and place. So the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, the scribe needs to put in proper ordering the comforts of this world. Now, this does not mean that all of us need to constantly be as uncomfortable as possible. Scripture speaks to this too. It's called asceticism. We should not begrudge the good gifts of God. You don't need to constantly eat the rice cake because you feel guilty that chocolate tastes good. That's not what's being required here. What is being required here in following Jesus is to understand the ongoing temptation that comfort will beckon us and promise something that we may be willing to sacrifice our following of Christ for. The question becomes, are you unwilling to do the uncomfortable thing in your pursuit of Jesus. Is there a kind of confession that feels simply too 
difficult? Is there a kind of reconciliation that is a bridge too far? Is there a kind of sacrificial love of time or effort or things that you cannot let go of? This is an extreme in many ways, but I remember it well. I was serving with a, a group of people and we were on a trip in Hong Kong. And this group, we spent weeks and weeks there bringing materials into mainland China and living in not great circumstances. And there was one particular member of our group who was having an extremely hard time with this trip. We were often uncomfortable. It was hot. We were living in very not great circumstances. And one night we were singing together and praying and we were talking about the claims of Jesus on those who would follow him. And passages like this came up. And I remember him just sitting quietly, but looking more and more perturbed throughout the evening and finally just asking all of us around the room, do you really believe this? I was saying, yeah. And then he went on this little mini rant and he said, well, I'll just tell you this isn't for me. He said, I believe that God wants me to be successful, to have things, to be comfortable, to drive wonderful cars and live in nice places. And that's the God that I serve. And if you're telling me that following Jesus means that I would have to live somewhere bad or have a rusty car or not be comfortable, I'm, I simply would not sign up for that. I'm out. Now, I want you to imagine the most rabid missionary group of people who think that this is the best thing in the world to live on concrete floors and do all this. Can you imagine the collective gasp in the room? A little cyclone came up through the room. (gasps) And I remember this moment so distinctly because looking at this young man, I realized that he was saying, if there is a cost in front of me, I'm out. And it pained me. It's lived with me for a lot of ways. And I also realized that this was complete coincidence, of course, but I probably have had a bit of a stereotype since then. He was, in fact, from California. (laughs) Point being this. Are there commitments? Maybe I'd go beyond commitments. Are there addictions to comfort? that are keeping us from the full abandonment and following Jesus. Have we coddled our escapes? Have we cordoned off parts of our life that we simply cannot give up? If so, then we have not understood and we are susceptible to being sidelined in our race of following after Christ. We must address the cost, especially in our day and age, the cost of our comforts if we're to follow Christ. There's another thing that's pressed to us now for running after Jesus, and that is what I called urgency or a kind of priority because another of the disciples, again, these are nameless scribe, nameless disciples. It's a reason I think that we can say, let's learn from this together. This disciple says to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. It's a reasonable request. 
Elisha famously, prior to following Elijah and his call, went to take care of things at home, and it seemed fine. Although this question of what can I take care of at home, or how much do I need to be set apart, has been consistent throughout the Bible. One of the greatest vows in the Old Testament, the Nazarite vow, the vow of seriousness, came with a prohibition of going to bury the dead. It said this in Numbers chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. All the days that he, meaning a Nazarite, who says, I'm going to vow and commit myself to the Lord, that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister. If they die, he shall, make him, shall he make himself unclean, because his separation to God is on his head. In some ways, Jesus is calling all who would follow him to have this kind of separation to him, Now, you may say to yourself, this seems unreasonably harsh, and we don't know the circumstances. We don't know if this disciple's father had actually died, and it's really a matter of give me one day to fix it, but it very well could have also meant, I'll be more freed up a few years from now. Let me go home and live out my days with my father and get everything sorted. I really want the inheritance first. That would make it easier for me to know that I could follow you. We don't know exactly the circumstances here, but Jesus again presses him and says, follow me, leave the dead to bury their own dead. What does this mean except that there is a kind of urgency, a priority about following of Jesus that by comparison leaves all other things unimportant? Jesus often teaches by these extremes to press home the question, the deepest questions of our hearts. Here's a great reality that I've seen. There is always a good excuse to put off spiritually costly things. Life will always interrupt with something that is good to distract from what is most important. I had a friend that I played basketball with since sixth grade. Great guy to this day. Consider him a wonderful friend. And he really considered the claims of Jesus for a number of years toward the end of high school. Came to Bible studies with us. Had long conversations. Really honestly, and I'll, I'll never forget a conversation with him. I'm driving south on Columbia Road. Coming up to university. It's right by the University of North Dakota. And he brings up Christianity. And I think, awesome, this is so great. I've been praying for him and hoping that we have these conversations. But he says, you know, I've been thinking about it. And here's the thing. I think one day, you know, when I'm like a dad or a grandfather or something, I think I'm going to be spiritual. I I want what you guys want. I get that. I think that's great. One day in the future, I think that I'm going to be somebody who's like that. Just not now. Just not now. Now. And I remember thinking that if something as urgent as the forgiveness of one's sins, if something as urgent as life eternal could be put off for decades to a future date, then there was something about what it meant to follow Jesus that was still missing in the heart of my friend. Again, it's a very stark reality. It's rare that we ever say things like this. You know, I want a real prayer life. I'll probably get around to that one day. We don't say these things out loud. We have not probably put a future date on repentance. But we can often live as though we have. 
Scripture has a great theme all throughout it. When you're awakened to, when you understand the realities of life, the deepest, the most important things, there's a kind of urgency that you live with that flows from. You don't muster up the urgency to prove that you know that it's important. The importance strikes you, and therefore you move. All throughout Scripture, that's mentioned by the word today. Today, when you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Seek Him today, you know, while He may be found. There will be a great temptation for us to imagine or to see the claims of Jesus and to put them off to a future date. So the questions that we may be able to ask ourselves are something like this. What kind of forgiveness is being put off at calendar date uncertain? What kind of bitterness somewhere out there will be let go of? What kind of repentance, confession, that we met with mercy is yet to be confessed. Jesus says that there is a great temptation in the following him, him to put off towards some future unknown date what is actually necessary here today. This very day, your life is required of you. This very moment, mercy is offered to you. Sometimes we're hindered in running after Jesus because of the great unknown tomorrow. So we leave now the cost. Many of us, we have a desire, a willingness to follow Jesus right up to the point where it costs us. We've pre-negotiated Christianity. We've said, I'll, I'll live it in this way and less. And then there's other times where we say to ourselves, I can imagine that future, but that's what it'll be. It'll be a kind of future, just not now. And Jesus beckons to us in both of those instances. And then also now, we're going to see that he discusses fear. The section from verse 23 to verse 27 likely is well known to you. I think it's well known for at least a couple of reasons. One, it's one of the few passages that's in all four of the Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are considered to be, this is a fancy Bible word, the synoptic Gospels, meaning that they're happening in time and in unison together. Many of the things happen in each of those books. And then there's the rare occasion where not only do those three books line up, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but even John, who is often much more uh, thematic, much more metaphoric, he even includes it. And the reality is this passage of Jesus in the boat with the storm coming up is included in all of the Gospels. So you probably are clear because as you read, it comes up often. But here's another reason why I think you may remember it well, and that is that it is vivid. A great rule of writing is to, sh- is to show, don't tell. In other words, don't just tell someone it was scary. Write it in such a way that you realize, wow, this is scary. And the way that Matthew writes, he gives us some of that detail. Behold. So again, it's a great Bible word. We should bring it back. No one ever says this. No one ever hands someone a clip of YouTube from the baseball game last night and says, behold, 
a grand slam. But it's a good word. I mean, it really invites somebody to something, right? It's like, look, but with wonder, right? So no one says that. We should. Behold, he says, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. An interesting wordplay thing here, the Greek behind this, the great storm, underlying it is the word seismos. The idea is that there is earthquake-like activity. And so now I immediately think of, hmm, earthquake under the sea. Now we're talking about tsunami. We're not talking about the gentle waves of Lake Jackson. (laughs) We're talking more like tsunami, more like that's not a mountain, an interstellar. More like this boat is going to be completely overrun and torn apart. And there, by contrast, Jesus lies asleep. So they went. These followers, these people who have already given them their lives to follow him, they're met with this moment and they go to him and they wake him saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he says to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Jesus seems to indicate one of the things that will keep us from following consistently is fear. Now, I want you to note something. Jesus does not say to them, how dare you bother me? He does point out their fear, but bringing it to him was probably the right move. He says to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? There's this inverse relationship. He says, in some ways, you've let your fear take hold, and you've demonstrated that your faith has been diminished, or is perhaps being revealed as being small. Now, much better to have little faith than no faith, but there's a demonstration of this here, an interaction between fear and faith. And so Jesus rises, and he rebukes the wind and the sea, and he brings a great calm. Same way there's a great Mega storm, there's now mega calm. I love that it's a great calm. It's a deep calm. There's a palpable peace. It says that the men marveled. They said aloud, what sort of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. I think they could also turn to themselves and ask a question like this. What kind of fears are these? The winds and the sea obey him. Why are you afraid? And it's this marveling of spirit that we're left with in a description of what it looks like to follow Jesus. I think that oftentimes we will stumble in following after and receiving the fullness of the promises that Jesus has given because we listen too much and entertain for far too long the deepest fears of our souls. Sometimes it can be really helpful to face your fears. I don't know how you do that. I don't know if you talk with someone. I don't know if you pray them out. Maybe you don't. Maybe you say, no, the manly thing to do with your fears is to just tuck them deep inside, farther and further into the boiler room of the pit of my So, I don't know how you face your fears. The reality is that we all have them. Fear being rejected and fear being laughed at and fear being exposed. Fear being uncomfortable. Fear being addicted 
we have fears. Facing them could be very, very helpful. It's interesting that he says it in the context of faith. It's not as though faith is not there. It's present. It's just that fear is fighting with it. I think about my grandmother when I think about this kind of fear. My grandparents were some of the most supportive people to me my whole life. Especially spiritually, they would pray for me and encourage me. You know how generically everything you do, your mom or your grandparents think you're the best? You know, like great job kind of stuff. They were more over the top than that. Always supporting. When I went to go do mission trips or go do ministry somewhere, I would get little letters in the mail, handwritten out. We love you. We know you're special. We've always prayed for you. And then a little $50 check or something like that, right? Like, she would always be worried that I'd be too skinny. If only she could see me now. So the point would be, have some money. Be supported. But I remember one point where my grandmother faced her fears. I was going to leave one day from the little farm stead, the little farm trailer that they had moved into in retirement so they could be close to the grandkids. I'm going to leave. I'm right next to the door. And my grandma comes over, and I can see she's starting to tear up. She's always been so supportive. She's starting to tear up. She just holds on to me, and she says, I don't want to let you go. And I'm like, well, Grandma, what's the deal? And she's like, see, here's the thing I saw on TV. How over there, sometimes Christians get persecuted. And you know what? If you go to Mongolia, that's how she say it, Mongolia, that they're murdering people over there. If they know you're a Christian, they'll just dismember you. They'll kill you right away. And then she begins to weep. And she says, Lord, don't send my baby to Mongolia to Mongolia. And she's grasping me to the point where it's kind of uncomfortable, just like digging into my arms, weeping. You see, what my grandmother did is that she had faith. She supported. She'd always want to send, but she was facing and admitting and confessing and bringing fears. And I felt loved. And I also was very proud of the way that she was able to face those things and name them as hilarious as it was. I think sometimes we're painfully unaware. I'm going to do the, the communication thing. This is a kind of pastoral thing. Ready for this? This is how this works. I'm telling the story about grandma. It's there. Here's the fears. And now we bring it home. What's your Mongolia? Do you know it? Are you like, no, no, I'm running hard after it. I got it. I'm going for this. I just keep stumbling. I'm stubbing my toes. What's the thing that deep down you would say to yourself, but Lord, please not this. What are you afraid of? What would be lost if you abandoned yourself to Jesus and his purposes? What reputation could be sacrificed? What ridicule would you face? If you asked for help, and confessed your sins. What do you fear? If you opened the conversation and sought to reconcile, what do you fear? If you gave sacrificially of yourself and your time, your money, or your things, what do you fear? If you prayed boldly, and ask for the things that really bother you. What do you fear? Oftentimes, the things that we fear will work to erode away 
the faith that gives us energy to run after Jesus. Now, this illustration of Jesus with the boat, there is so much going on behind the scenes. You know, Matthew always is, in, is saying he's a fulfillment. Jesus is a fulfillment. I just want to encourage you, if you really want to go back and look, you could say to yourself, wow, doesn't this remind you of Jonah? The reality is, yes, this reminds me of Jonah. Jonah is asleep in the stern of the boat. They wake him up. There's a very real problem, though. Jonah's the problem, and he can't control anything, so he gets thrown overboard. Jesus is asleep in the boat. The winds and the sea obey him. You may say to yourself, well, that's a bit of a stretch, the boat thing. And I would just say, well, Jesus himself compares himself to Jonah in Matthew chapter 12. He says in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The ministry of Jesus is nearly systematically going to prove that he is a greater and better version of nearly every hero or anti-hero of the faith. There's also a wonderful theme in this idea of the wind and the seas obeying him because water is a constant theme throughout Scripture. It's often a symbol of chaos and powerful forces that can't quite be controlled. In fact, the book of Genesis opens with the Spirit hovering over the waters, and what does it do? It controls them and brings about creation. It's one of the instances that shows that God's in control. Floods are a sign of judgment. There's so much going on behind the scenes. The end point is simply this. We need not fear because Jesus controls all of the chaos. As the psalm that we open the service with says, His voice is over the waters. He can call forth and bring calm in the midst of storms. And so the question remains, what sort of man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. It begs to be answered. Jesus is the sort of man that can be entrusted with our souls. Now, I hope that you're not being left with something this morning. I hope you're not being left with something that sounds like this. You're not running fast enough after Jesus. Speed up. You're not strong enough. Be stronger. You should feel shame for all of these stubbed toes that you have. You see, there's something that's amazing about Scripture. There is something that brings us to repentance, but you know what it's not? It's not the cajoling of God. It's not the commands or the scolding of God. You know what Scripture says brings us to repentance? The kindness of God. Here's the great kindness of those who would willingly, like the scribe or like the disciple or like those who are in the boat about to be swamped, to those who want to, who have little faith. Here's the great kindness of God. Jesus not only knows what the race is to be called to follow him, but he knows every obstacle. He is familiar with our weaknesses. He has made accommodation. In fact, he has given mercy that is far more than any of our failings. What keeps you from running full speed toward Jesus will not keep him in his mercy from forgiving you and offering you life and all things pertaining to godliness in him. You need not fear your stumbles. Jesus is merciful, far more merciful than any obstacle is powerful 
to keep you from Him. The great promise of Scripture is not that you're going to gut it out, but that Jesus will keep you by His power. That He who began a good work in you will complete it. So what we desire to be restored to is not the sweaty grit of ignoring our failings and keeping on by our own power, but the joy of restful following. The promise of forgiveness for our failings and the slow, degree by degree, glory that comes by the Spirit of Jesus. So count the cost. Turn to Him as long as it's called today. Name your fears and bring them to Jesus. He can be entrusted with your soul. And all the while be assured of this. He knows. He knows your slowness. He knows your weakness. He knows your stumbles. He knows your distractions. And He has taken all of it upon Himself. He can be trusted, and it is not a burden, but a joy to follow Him. So let's follow Him together. Let's pray.